lot to cover in Romans chapter 1. Let's pray together. Father, in the name of Jesus, we thank you for your blessing and goodness. We thank you for the cross, and we thank you for the blood of your Son who cleanses us from all sin. We praise you, Lord God, that you are the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You are, not you were, Lord. You are the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and you are the God, Lord, uh, of us today. You're the God of Jesus. You're the God of Paul and Peter. And we thank you, Lord, for your son. And thank you for bringing us into salvation, into the salvation that we have in your son, Jesus. We ask you, Lord, that through your Holy Spirit, whom you gave to each one of us and to the church uh, as our teacher, our guide, our, our friend, our comforter, that through him we can learn, Lord, more about your word today. Teach us about Jesus, Lord. Teach us about our need for him. Teach us about our dependence on him and the power of your Holy Spirit to live a crucified life. Help us to render ourselves dead today, Lord, to sin, but alive in Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. So today we have communion, so we have to hurry very quickly, because not to hurry for hurry's sake, but hurry through the introduction. Good news of God's wrath, part two. It's our title today, the good news of God's wrath. And that may sound like a square circle to you, but it is the good news of God's wrath. If we read it together, let's go to Romans chapter 1, and I'll read it. You follow along the first few verses. I'm sorry, not the first few verses. From verse 18, and I'll read up to verse 23. I'll finish 23, and then we'll pick it up from there once we begin our teaching. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature has been, make, uh, has been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or gave thanks, but they became futile in their speculation, and their foolish hearts uh, was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchange the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and birds or four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Paul's main message in chapter 1 is the fact that there is the gospel. The gospel is revealed, and it reveals something of the righteousness of God. It's the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, meaning we start with faith, we continue with faith, we go on with faith. But chapters 1 through 3, which is the part that we're in now, is really, you can title it, The Sins of Men and the Wrath of God. And this is the second part that we're going to be talking about. That's what this is part two, is the wrath of God. Because in verse 18, something else is revealed. It is the wrath of God from heaven. The gospel reveals the righteousness of God, the right standing with God, being made right by God. And then God reveals something else. He reveals his wrath. And it's no coincidence that Paul joins them together because the gospel and the wrath of God are supposed to go together. One is the solution of the other. Gospel so, uh, solves the, uh, the impending judgment of the wrath of God is solved through the gospel. And we'll talk about that today. But chapters 1 through 3 deals with this one single word with the I in the middle is sin. And we have to start with sin because that's the problem. That is the problem of man. It's sin. And the first three chapters, whether you like it or not, deals with this problem, sin. And sin has corrupted all of us. And Paul makes no qualms about it. He says the religious person has sinned through hypocrisy. And the pagan has sinned through immorality. 
despite the fact that they may be seen differently and maybe we would judge them differently, God says all of them have sinned and all of them fall short of the glory of God. But Paul also deals with the sin between Jew and Gentile. The Jews, because of their religious background, sin in a religious way, meaning hypocrisy. They don't do what they know better. They know better. They know the truth. They have the Bible. They were given the word of God and they sin hypocritically. Although they knew God and his word, they did not practice it. And therefore, they're guilty of hypocrisy, religious sins. Uh, they're, to, they're, the, they're the quiet sin, you would say. Not overt, not outwardly, but inwardly. But the pagan, the Bible says, sins in an immoral way. And that's what we talk about today, the sins of the Gentiles. The Gentiles without God have the propensity to go into immorality. Immorality, and we'll see that today in just a few minutes. So, uh, righteousness of God, the wrath of God. Here's verse, verse 18 again. The wrath of God is revealed. And so the question that we had earlier is, the gospel reveals the righteousness of God, but then the wrath of God is revealed in heaven, uh, in heaven, from heaven, I should say, against godlessness and wickedness. And we talked about that. The idea of someone who is ungodly has to do with the fact that they don't follow God. They, it's, nothing, it's nothing to do with behavior, per se, but it has to do with void of God. People live a very good, live a very moral life, but the void of God. That's still an ungodly person. A person who does, tries to do well, feeds the cat, meals on wheels, all those things, right? And claim that that is, makes me a good person. Still an ungodliness because they're devoid of God. They don't worship God. They don't thank God. They don't believe in God necessarily. They may acknowledge that there is a God, but they don't think of him or worship him or thank him. And then there is unrighteousness. The unrighteousness, of course, that is an action. And so the ungodliness is toward God and the unrighteousness is toward men. And if a person is ungodly, it only takes a very short time for them to become unrighteous, meaning that their actions toward a fellow human being. So those are the Ten Commandments in a nutshell. Um, the Ten Commandments deals the first part with God, the relationship with God, the, the vertical, and then the horizontal one has to do with the second tablet, and that is the unrighteousness of man. So we have broken both tablets of, of the Ten Commandments, we would say. We've been ungodly. Even when we knew there was a God, we didn't worship him, we didn't thank him, we didn't live for him, he wasn't part of our lives or our thinking. And then we got into unrighteousness. We behaved in an unrighteous way toward others. And people know this. And Paul's point in the first part, last time I was here, was that people know that there is a God. And look at verse 18 again. They suppress the truth in unrighteousness because that which is known about God is evident. That which is known about God, it is evident from creation. And so all of mankind knows two things by looking at nature. One, they know that there is a powerful God. Uh, his invisible attributes are clearly seen. There is a God who is powerful, and there is a God who has a divine nature, meaning he's not like us. So his power, anybody can go outside today, look at the sun, and go, who put that up there? How does it stay fixed? <laughs> In the sense of, it's, it's up there. It's, it doesn't fall. It's not, it's not running through the universe and gravity hasn't taken over and destroyed this planet. Well, who put those up? Who put the stars? Um, who created those things? How, why is there not a, a, a snowflake? You know snowflakes? Not one of them is the same. They're all different. A blade of grass, not one of them is the same. 
uh, who, who has such intricacies to create things that you would, I mean, who cares about a snowflake, right? Anyone here? God does. And he make them unique. Each one is different. A blade of grass, we mow, we don't think about it. It itches, you know, sometimes it, uh, it causes irritation. Well, not one single blade of grass is the same. Well, who did that? How do you answer that, Mr. Atheist or Agnostic? How, how is it that not one person is the same? Not one person, even identical twins have variations. Lots of variations. They might look the same, but tremendous variations in their DNA. Who did all that? Spontaneous combustions <laughs> in, in an accidental circumstances, right? That's what I was taught. However, there is something that we're suppressing. The fact that that is true leads you to think whoever did that, you know, who, uh, you know look at the genetic code, um, right? Information science tells us the axiom of information science, which is like the most powerful science there is today, that uh, a code cannot come out of nothing. A code cannot, information cannot arrive spontaneously. You know, you know what I'm saying by that? Like if you get a book and you read the book, it has information in it, you didn't go, whoa, how did that happen? It just, it just came about. Somebody exploded a factory you know, somewhere in L.A., and then you got a book with all these wonderful poetry and, and stories, right? Gulliver's Travel, things, Animal Farm, books that you love and read and things like that, Pilgrim Progress, right, for us as Christians. It didn't come out of nowhere. <laughs> there was an author. There was an intent. There was a design. There was thinking. There was knowledge. There was truth that wanted to be communicated. Well, God is the same thing. God has communicated this truth to us, and every human being is different. And it's created in the image of God with a unique imprint in terms of how they are. No one is the same. No one's like that. You know, that's it. It's that one person. Your son, your daughter is unique. There's nobody will ever be like him or her. We know that, that God created us. God created those things. So we, we can know that there's a divine creator. But also, we can know his divine nature. He's not like us. Man didn't do that. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God. And therefore, this is where the crux of the matter comes in. The wrath of God is revealed. And the question is why? Right? Simple questions. When you ever read the Bible, the Bible is very simple. You just ask simple questions. Why is the wrath of God revealed? Because that's a very good question, isn't it? If the Bible says there is wrath of God, why is he doing this? Well, the question is answered in verse 21. And the word is for. And the word for, uh, we don't use that word too much today because we use another word in English called because. Because. So just substitute that word in English. Because even though they knew God, right, they weren't ignorant of that. No human is ignorant. They could see the divine, uh, that the, the, the nature has a divine imp uh, fingerprints. They know there's power. Whoever did those things are is, is an amazing creator. And there's much more we can say because I, I didn't believe that before. I was an agnostic, and I used to believe in evolution. That's like believing in fairy tales, pretty much. And then um, when I was a child, I spoke as a child. I believed as a child. But then I grew up, and I became a Christian. And that's what a Christian is, is somebody who knows the truth now. And so even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or gave him thanks. And they became futile in their speculation, and their foolish hearts was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. And exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible men and birds of four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Why is God angry? Because man gave up God. Man did not want God in their thinking and in their minds and in their lives. And they said, 
forget God. But man is a creature that needs to worship. Man is a creature that uh, we're made in the image of God. We have this desire in us to worship and to believe in something. Even the most ardent atheist believes in himself. Even the most ardent atheist believes in a dogma of some sort. Whether it's philosophy, whether it's agnosticism, or whatever it is, communism, communism, whatever they, they believe in, the state. They have a belief that they have to hold on to it because we're made that way. And when you give up God, you exchange him for anything. And here's the first thing is to exchange him for idols. And the second question, we'll talk about that in a minute, is the second question is how does God reveal his anger? Because if God is angry because of that, they gave up on God, how does he reveal it? Does he just wipe everybody out? Right? That would be... Uh, the wrong thinking about God because we think God's wrath is like man's wrath. It's vengeful. It has, uh, you know, God is an ill-tempered man, ill-tempered old man that if you cross him, he just smacks you in the head and just wipes away half the population. That's not God's wrath. Uh, the other part of God's, God's wrath is also not a, uh, people describe God as just circumstances that happen in life, sort of like, um, sort of like reaping what you sow. That the wrath of God is just simply, you know, if you, if you violate this laws, you're going to have this consequence. That's not the wrath of God. Those are just consequences to things that uh, happen in life. And, and, and people describe, you know, the laws of the universe. If you, if you do certain things and something bad's going to happen to you, and they say, well, that's God's wrath. And God's wrath is neither ill-tempered, reactionary, and it's also not impersonal. It's something personal that God reacts toward the sins of man. And just like you would react to sins done against you, God has a reaction to sins done against him and what they've done to his creation. And so they have exchanged the truth of God, and they started imagining God and all kinds of different things. So let's go back to verse 23. They exchanged the glory of God. They exchanged the glory of God for uh, of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man. God was exchanged. It sounds like a weird thing, right? They exchanged God. They gave him up. They gave him up by first suppressing the truth. That was back in verse 18. They first have to suppress the truth. No, he's not real. He doesn't exist. If he is, he's not like what I imagine him to be. Then they exchange him. They exchange him, meaning that it's not just so much ignoring God. Now they start imagining what God is like. And um, the idea that God is like this, it's quite interesting, right? Because we think that's what the, the ideas of God started coming out, uh, especially in his own people, the children of Israel. Um, God is not like a golden calf, but that's what they represented, right? But idolatry goes further, much more further than just a statue or an idol or an image. It goes into the heart of men. And so man begins to imagine God in, their, in, his, in his own image. Uh, or people say things like, no, I don't believe in the God you're talking about. My God, my idea of God is this. My idea of God is in they construct God in according to what they believe God should be like. It's an imagination. And many times, and at the end of listening to them, my answer is always, how odd. Your God sounds like you. Your God believes exactly what you believe. Your God is basically you. 
You have just described God, but in describing God, you describe you. You describe your likes and dislikes. And therefore, that is the idea that Paul is addressing here. They exchange the truth of God, and they exchange it into a, uh, from the incorruptible to the corruptible forms. They began to worship the creature rather than the creator. And they start imagining their own God. And if you can't worship, or in worshiping, you have to have an image. And people began to address this. We need something to help us to worship God. All idolatry did not begin saying, this is God, let's worship him. All idolatry began like this. We need something to help us worship God. We believe God is in this form or in this way or this idea or this thinking. And this will help us get closer to God. Uh, any idol maker did not begin to say, well, this is my God and I'm going to worship. They began to say, hmm, this is a good way to worship God. And they began to create images like this. And certainly, shortly after that, the idol maker begins to worship that which he created and representation of God. That's the slope. That's the downward slope of any idolatry. It begins with the thinking, this can help me, you know, because I can't see God. I can't, I can't see him. I, I don't know him. And therefore, I need something like a catalyst to help me get to God. And sooner or later, that invisible God that we all believe the true invisible God becomes, it becomes a form of, it comes in the form of an idol. And then that idol takes the place of God. The idol becomes the reason you worship or the reason you uh, come to any, you know, whatever religion you have. And so it's quite interesting that Paul talks about birds and four-footed animals and things like that and crawling creatures. And it's quite interesting that every, any religion, just like nations and countries, any religion has a representation of some kind of animal. Nations have this as well. Nations represented by animals. You, you know, normally, we think of America as an eagle. We think of uh, the Russian, uh, Russian bear. Uh, what else is there? Uh, we think of the Roman eagle. We think of, uh, what else is out there? Uh, the Egyptian, the bull, right? And you have all these different religions mixed with pagan idols and idolatry. Nations have the same thing. They rep they're represented by animals. Well, religion does the same thing. And, um, and, and, and at the end of the day, it doesn't matter if your God is material or mental, right? You are making a God on your own imagination. You believe God is like this. You believe God is like that. Maybe you don't have an idol you worship at home, but you definitely can bow down to other material things that you have. Or you could become so obsessed with yourself and your thinking that you become your own God. It's a basically you call the, the destinies in your hands. You call the shots. You're the master of your own life and your own ship. And you're going to do this no matter what. And so you have substituted the invisible and, and, and uh, the invisible God, the incorruptible God, for something that you can see in a mirror. The creature, myself. It could be material things. It could be mental things. But nonetheless, you created them in your mind and imagination. The Bible is nothing like what men imagine him to be. He's invisible, number one, but he's also not like men. He doesn't lie like men. That's one of the things the Bible says. He's not like us. He doesn't lie. He doesn't deceive. He doesn't do those things. So he becomes very different than us. We're created in his image. Therefore, we bear his image and likeness. We don't create God in our own image and likeness. But that's what happens in idolatry. And it's quite interesting that ecumenism does this today. One of the biggest 
uh, subjects today in every religion, every religious circle is um, just join together. Let's join all religions together. And what Paul is making the case here is because all religions have made up something about God, then all religions are lies to cover the truth. Okay, so this is, uh, I'll say it again, because all religions are basically a substitution for the true worship of the living God, the true creator God, the God of Israel, then all other religion, all other religions, it's a false, it's a lie that covers the true worship of God. And God is the God of Israel. Like it or not, God revealed himself to one nation, the nation of Israel. He is the Jewish God. And that may fly into the face of many, many people today, especially the UN, especially the ecumenical movement, right? Uh, they call it, philosophy calls it the scandal of singularity, meaning that God revealed himself to one group of people. You know, because what ecumenism says is God revealed himself to Everyone. And that's not quite biblical, right? Sounds nice. Sounds humanistic. But the Bible says he revealed himself to one person, Abraham. And through that one person, he brought, he brought a family and a nation. And through that family and a nation, he brought the Messiah to bring salvation to all men. But it was through one particular group of people. And this is an offense today. Because we believe that well, God should have just showed himself to the Americans or to the Vikings or to the Eskimos or to the Mexicans or to wherever you may be from, right? And people go, that, that's more acceptable. That's right. He did reveal himself to everybody. And the Bible says no. And it's an offense because he is the Jewish God. He is the God of Israel. If you don't believe in the God of Israel, you don't believe in the true God. And that might be offense to people like in the Muslim community or in the New Age community. How dare! What a scandal! That's what they call it, call it, the scandal of singularity, meaning that God revealed himself to one particular people. And man, uh, man rather say, he should have revealed himself to everybody. He does now through Jesus Christ, but his revelation to mankind began through the Jewish, through the Jewish people, through a Jewish book, through a Jewish Messiah. And to believe in that is to believe in the true God. Now, What's amazing thing, and I'll just uh, say this very quickly, is don't want to delay too many things. Archaeology has helped us and developed this, really, the, the, the biblical st uh, study, especially Romans 1. Paul is saying that everybody at one point knew God, that there was one supreme God. But then idolatry came in later. You see it in how Paul describes it. Even though they knew God, then they exchanged God for idols and creeping things, and, and animals, and nature, and things like that. Well, if this is true, does the evidence that we see in archaeology, in life, does that bear witness to that revelation that Paul is, 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 is letting us know? And the answer is yes. Back when I was studying sociology and all this weird stuff that I used to study, they used to tell us that the thinking was, the philosophy of the day was, you man began with idols and begin with really basic stuff. You know, they worship a stick or they worship a rock or something. And then man progressed in their thinking and evolved to a more sophisticated person. And they became so sophisticated they believed in nothing. 
Because at the end of the day, atheism is a progression of, uh, so I said, that's, that's not progress, that's like dumbing down. You believed in something and now you believe in nothing. Well, the idea was that we, men began more sophisticated and they, be, they created this idea of one God, monotheism. They created this idea of one God, so it's an evolutionary step. What follows the thinking of evolution. We were really, really dumb at one point and worshiping rocks and things like that. And we evolved into our thinking, you know, plural gods, local deities, and then monotheism came later. But the question is, my friend, whether you like it or not, that's not the question. How you feel about it doesn't matter. The question you've got to ask, is that true? Is it true? Go to the archaeological records, go to the Smithsonian, go to the London Bible Museum. I challenge you to do that. And what you'll find is the earliest that you can find in the stratus or archaeology reveals how many idols do you think? None. The further you go, the closer to our time, the more idols appear. And they know this. Archaeology has revealed it. That's why people hate archaeologists. And uh, because, uh, you know, you, you want to suppress all this. And by the way, there's a lot of suppression in the archaeological circles. Uh, I met with some brothers that are wonderful believers, archaeologists, at least um, not well-known because they believe the Bible. And, uh, and, and they said, wow, you know, it's such a suppression. Even those who believe in God suppress it because they don't want to be seen as fools and in a world of scientists, and they don't want to come out with their findings. But, um, you, you know, we know so much about Jericho. Um, that's a side note. We know so much about Jericho, but you, we know a little bit that's come out, a little bit has come out. But there's stuff that it'll blow your mind. It literally will blow your mind to, to the reality that we know exactly where the wall is that fell. We know it fell exactly as the Bible said it fell. Uh, there's evidence of, of burning. There's evidence of all kinds of things. Exactly what you'll find in the book of Joshua is exactly. But why don't we hear about this? Because the UN says, nope. UNESCO says, nope. You can't share that with anybody. God forbid people start believing the Bible. And that's the ultimate point. So archaeology shows that the lower, the oldest, oldest evidence, no idols. What does Paul say? Even though they knew God. They knew he was the creator. They knew he was supreme, divine. Then they exchanged him. And as you go further into history, then you see idols popping up in different stratas that they, that they find. And it's exactly what the Bible says. The oldest you go, no idols. That means that they believe in the supreme God. The closer you get to our time, more idols. How did that happen? Men declined in their thinking. Man began with the true knowledge of God. They knew who he was. And, and what does the Bible show? It's exactly that. That Adam and Eve and all their descendants, they knew about God. Enoch, Methuselah, Noah, and all those fairy tales that people say that, that existed, right? Real people in real places believed that there was a God and a true God. Cain knew that there was a God and a true God. They knew, but then they began to exchange. And then you see the Canaanite religion began to pop up with all these different idols and all these different deities. It's exactly what the Bible says, exactly what Romans 1 says, and is exactly what archaeology proves. So my friend, I'll be reading a book that's alive and true. Absolutely. No doubt. We look at our world and we say exactly what the Bible says. And of course, I would say that uh, we exchange the truth of God for a lie. We worship ourselves. And narcissism, it's such a, it's such a terrible thing in the heart of man, because you could say, 
I don't worship idols. I don't worship this. But we worship the creature ourselves. Or people get involved in sports and they, they just so, and, and it's everything it's about sports and, and, and it's, it's an idolatry beyond belief. And people, uh, of course, there's nothing wrong with sports in a, in, in a vacuum in a sense of like, I like to play it. <laughs> I like to do it. It's fun. It's activity. It's good. But I'm talking about the obsession to the degree that it, like, have you heard, I mean, I don't, I don't want to talk about anybody bad or anything like that. I don't know what you guys like, but let's say baseball or football or basketball or whatever. We live in a football. Is this football town or Laker town or basketball town, right? And, and you can hear people when they talk about their favorite sports stars, right? Uh, they're talking like if it was their God, like this is, or, or let's say entertainment. You know, I don't, I, didn't, I don't want to age myself, but whoever it is today, right? Uh, you know, whatever. And, uh, and they, they just talk about them, and they know everything about the team. And it's like their whole existence revolves around the existence of that person or the team. And with social media today, it becomes even more ingrained. It's like, you know, I follow so-and-so, and I follow so-and-so, and they follow me. And it's it just like this. It permeates into every part of society, this idea of idolatry. So God is angry because God, uh, men gave God up. That's the reason why. So the question to the why, why is God angry? Because man gave him up. Man said, we don't need you. We don't want you. We know about you, but we desire, we desire to worship what we want. We desire to worship ourselves or we desire to worship things that we create or things that God created that are made into, into idols. That's what we desire. We don't need you, God, and we don't need to have you around. Now, before you say, well, isn't that, isn't that a man's choice? Well, yes, certainly. But why, so why is God angry about that? Well, let me ask you this. You have children? You have children, okay. If your children today, you brought them up, you brought them up in the Lord, you did great things for them, you, you care for them, you took care of them, you changed their diapers, you brought them up, and then you dropped them off to school, you did everything for them. And they get, to be, they get to be at a certain age, and they say, Mom and Dad, I hate you. I don't like you. I don't be around you. I'm just here until I'm 18, and I'm out. And they leave, and they don't talk, about, they don't talk to you. They don't communicate with you. They, you simply don't exist in their lives. How would you feel? Well, say, if it was someone else, you would go, well, that's too bad. But if it was me, if it was you, you go, what? That should not be. And, you should, and you're right in that reaction. Not only sad. But your emotion toward that would be of, what did I do? How did I, how did I fail you? And God created us with the purpose of being his family, to be his friend, to be his heir, to enjoy him, and to live in his kingdom. And man turned around and turned their back on God, gave him up. Do you think God is going to have emotion toward that? Do you think God is going to just say, well, whatever, you know, it's up to you. You know, God reacts to it. His emotion toward it. And his emotion toward this is that he is angry at that. Angry at that because they, he knows that there's no way humanity can be saved. There's no way humanity can, can ever be of any use in this, in this world unless they have him. And that's the biggest lie that we swallow is that we can exist in this world. We can live this life without God. And God says, no, you can't. You weren't created for that purpose. You weren't created like that. You were created to live with me. You were created to be in my kingdom as my family. And therefore, God has shown them that he's true. He's shown them that he's real. And men have rejected that. And therefore, now God gives 
man up. And this is the next part of the verse. Therefore, verse 24, God gave them up. God gave them over. And this is how God reveals his anger. God gives man up and he gives them over. He gives them over in their lust of their hearts to impurity, to their bodies, might be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them over to, this great, to the grating passions. For their women exchanged the, nat- the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way, they also, the uh, same way also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burning their desire toward one another. Men with men committing indecent act and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. I'll stop right here. We'll continue in a moment. How does God show this anger? He gives them up. And it's repeated for our instruction in verse 24. He gives them over. Verse 27. I'm sorry, verse 26. God gave them over. Verse 28. Uh, God, uh, God gave them over to their depraved minds. When something's repeated in the Bible, period, it's important. When it's repeated in the same book, really important. When it's repeated in the same context of the chapter, incredibly important. What is God trying to tell us here? You give me up, I will give you over. I'll give you up. The anger of God is because of their idolatry. The result of their idolatry is God giving them over to two things. Impurity in their bodies and a depraved mind. Two things happen to mankind when they reject God and exchange God. And God says, you don't want me, I won't be around. And God is angry not at their immorality. This is, this is quite important to understand. God is not angry at their immorality, per se, in the sense of that's the reason why he is angry at them. He's angry at the fact that man gave him up. He's angry at the fact that they exchanged them for an idol and they worship four-footed animals and things like that. God is angry that man, created in his image, gave him up, just like you would your children giving you up after you'd done so much for them. You could feel how God feels. So God says, okay, you don't want me? I'm not going to be here. I will give you over to what is already in you. And we'll talk about that in a minute. Your Unnatural passions. Unnatural passions. Now, before we get into, uh, Chris, are you back there? Or is, who's back there? Chris, okay, I have a video. Can I show the video very quickly? Okay, is that all right? Okay, it's about three minutes long. And, and, and I say this, and I'm going to show you the video. This is from an Anglican uh, minister in Toronto, Canada, who is going to tell you quite opposite of what you just read in the Bible. This minister in Toronto, Canada uh, promotes uh, everything opposite to what we just read and what I'm going to teach you. And um, you'll hear it from her. And just, so we're going to just oppose it. We're going to show you the difference. Because she takes exact passage that I'm going to take, Romans 1, and you'll read. And, well, let her tell you in her own words <laughs> what exactly she means. Because she says, no, you can't trust what you're reading. And this, my friend, it is the common view in uh, English-speaking churches. This is the most common view of Romans 1 in English-teaching churches. So let's show that here. 
This is in Toronto, Canada. This is this past June, so it's very, very recent. I don't remember her name, but um, it's not important. It's just what she says. Okay, so what does it say in the Greek? You can read any No, this is important. Yeah. What does it say in Greek? Uh, which, which passage? Romans, Romans chapter Romans 1, chapter where one. it says that, uh, I would say the second half of the okay. chapter. Yeah, that, the second half of Google, Romans what chapter 1 is actually a very complicated point of interpretation because Paul appears to be speaking in quotation marks here and primarily speaking about um, Roman, Roman customs as opposed to Jewish customs. What he's addressing may be temple prostitution. Um, certainly some of what he's addressing is heterosexuals engaging in non-reproductive sex practices. He certainly had issues with that. Paul did not have the same understanding of sexual orientation or committed same-sex partnerships that we do. Um, on the other hand, most of the passages which are taken as a condemnation of homosexuality are based on disputable translations of words which are often hapax legomena okay. and whose understanding we, we do not, we can't fully translate with accuracy. Can I ask you a question? Do you support... Uh the month of June's uh, celebration of gay pride. I do. I have seen in the lives of same-sex couples, which I know, um, the fruits of the spirit. I have seen loyalty. I have seen sacrificial love. I have seen Christian lives much better than my own. And I believe that as with Peter and the Gentiles, when I witness the fruits of the spirit in the lives of committed same-sex partners, many of whom are Christians, then I respect that as demonstrating an extension an extension of how we have understood the gospel, as widening our understanding of what is Do you support is uh, gay pride parades? Yes, I, I, I attend. Okay, I march so, in the pride one parade. Second, yeah. One second. Yes. Uh, so what about when people come out here and they have uh, these parades, yeah. uh, do you not witness the other unspeakable acts of debauchery, drunkenness, celebration of wickedness? There's all kinds. It's not just uh, even a celebration of gay you're pride. You're having and much more fun at Pride than I am, I think. No, I'm not even going to Pride, but I've seen the videos of just uh, people dressing very lewd. Ways and they're dressing their children up and celebrating this lewdness. And, a small number and of people. A small number of right? people are lightly dressed. I am not particularly concerned about that. It's a particular context. The majority of people at the pride parade are just wearing ordinary. Do you believe our bodies clothes. are temples of the Holy Spirit, and then we're supposed to keep our bodies holy as God is holy? Uh, yes, I think I have a different interpretation of what, what it means to keep your body holy. Keeping our body holy. Will you share I, that with us? Acting with love, with integrity, with service to the poor, with loyalty, with all of these things. Okay, but what about the sin that we commit with our bodies against God? I think the worst sin we commit with our bodies against God right now is our indulgence of our appetite for fossil fuels, which is destroying the planet. I don't mean to laugh. But that is about as tragically as it is funny. She says, we can't trust Romans 1 because of hapex legomena. Hapex legomena simply means, fancy word for saying, there are words in Romans 1 that are not used in any other verse, in any other context in the New Testament. Therefore, we cannot trust him. Because Paul is using very unique words to explain 
the, the, the sin of the Gentiles here, the sin of the immorality. Therefore, you, can't, you, you heard, the, sir, heard the word, I speak Greek, I can, I can, I can read it. And, uh, well, hapex legomena, you know, what she's trying to say is you can't trust it. You can't trust Romans 1 because these words are, you know, who knows what they mean. And so he could be talking about this, he could be talking about that. And it's a very liberal way of interpretation, which means that because there's no other word like that in the New Testament, therefore you can't trust it. Now, there are other passages in the Bible that have this hapex legomena, which means basically it's never used in any other context. Bear with me for just a second. This may be a little bit technical, but if, if you can grasp it, you can get it. Because the point is, this is an excuse for not reading what it says and what it means. So you can't trust your translations because who knows what they mean? Let me ask you this, my friend. Are there words that you never use in English? You don't use them in your vocabulary. You don't use them in your writing. You don't use them in your communication with anyone. Are there words that you don't use today in English that are real words, but you don't use them? Anybody? Okay, I never use the word perspicuity in any context that I can possibly remember. I don't remember anything ever writing of anything like that. Does that mean that that word doesn't have a meaning? No. That's what she's saying. Because we don't know what they could be, you know, who knows? Then we can't trust it. Now, it does not affect translation. It does affect interpretation to a degree because you don't have another word to compare it. You don't have another word to compare it. But the words here, we know exactly what they mean. So when we read, especially verse 24 to the end of verse 32, there are words that Paul uses in this context that are used one time in the Bible. Some, not all of them, some. She says, you can't trust them. However, what she, didn't, what she failed to mention is we have classical Greek that uses those words. Because remember, this is Koine Greek. We have classical Greek. We have Septuagint, which is a translation of the Old Testament into Greek. And we have the church fathers who wrote in Greek, second, third century, that used those words. So, nonsense. She's nonsensical. I don't mean that in a bad way. She's trying to deceive people into thinking that there's nothing wrong with what they're doing in their debauchery because Romans 1 doesn't forbid it because of some apex legomena. Fancy word of saying, only use one time. Well, I never use certain words in English. It doesn't mean that those words don't exist. You may use them. <laughs> you know, because I don't use them, you can't use them. That's what she's saying. So, nonsense. But unfortunately, this is the primary view in many denominations. In Anglican circles, Presbyterian circles, Methodist circles, Lutheran circles. And further down the road, it goes. And it's saying there's nothing wrong with it. This past weekend... A, a charismatic uh, false teacher came out and says he's homosexual, Todd Bentley. And there's nothing wrong with him. He's been bisexual and homosexual for 10, 12 years. Had marriage partners on his bed, men and women, him and his wife. No problem. Nobody's raised a hand and saying, hey, um, something's wrong here. No, because it's normal. It's normative. It's been normative. Now, only saying that because we got to keep going. Keep that in mind, traditional thinking in churches that speak English have this view, have this view. I'm not saying all of them, and I'm not saying all believers. I'm talking about denomination, teaching, and how they view Romans 1, in particular, the last few verses that we're reading today.
So back to verse 26. For this reason God gave them, I'm sorry, verse 24. God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity that their bodies may be dishonored. So their bodies are debased. Later on we'll find out that the minds are depraved. Two things happen when God gives man over. And this is the reality of God, God giving man over. You can understand it better with this illustration. God is keeping the brakes on, on society and on sin. As long as society remains, uh, for the most part, permeated with the knowledge of God and the truth of God, there's a resistance against sin. The church being salt and light. God puts restraining, his restraining power, he put the brakes on. However, I, I went to San Francisco one time, and I saw a car on a steep hill go downhill very quickly. Uh, they forgot to put the parking brake on, and that car went smashing down to the end of that street very, very fast. You know, it picks up speed as you go. It's physics stuff. You know, so it just goes faster and faster and faster the closer it approaches the target. Well, think of God as taking the brakes off society. When God is given up by men, so man gives up God and exchange them, God gives them over to what they want. No God. And you know what? A, you want to know a world without God? It's a world without brakes. It's like a car without brakes. It just keeps going, and it just seems like it goes faster and faster and faster as it reaches its intended target, which is destruction. Another way to put it, and maybe more classical, it's Pandora's box. You know the story of Pandora, right? I had the lid on and all these, and then she was curious, and then she opened Pandora's back, and all these evil spirits went to the ends of the earth and destroyed the world, right? And then she, could put it, she couldn't put the lid back on. Think of that. That's what's happening and what Paul is describing here in society. When man gives man up, when man gives God up, then God gives them over to what they want, and God takes the restraints off society and says, you want to know what society is like without me? Enjoy, because it's going to be a fast ride. Not a good ride, but definitely fast. And it goes downhill very quickly. I am and you are like Pandora's box. There are things in us that are restrained by God. Even when we did not know God personally, we had, there was a restraint on society. There was a restraint on us. There were certain things we couldn't go beyond that. Our conscience, we knew right and wrong. We knew there was a God, and so there was a natural tendency to put the brakes on. But the more you did it, it became easier and easier to indulge in it to the point where now it didn't matter. You didn't care. Your conscience was, was gone. It didn't matter what people said. You were going to do what you're going to do. Well, Christ came to us, and in his grace and his mercy gave us his Holy Spirit, and he made our spirit alive. So now we have a body, a soul, a mind, and a spirit, and we can worship God and relate to God. But in me, there's still Pandora's box. In me, there are natural, unnatural affections. In me, there are things that are not good in my own nature because I was not just born <laughs> in this world. I was born a sinner. And that nature that although Christ has put a lid on, it's still there. And therefore, though that nature can come out just like Pandora's box, and that nature can do tremendous damage to me, myself, to my family, to a lot of people. And therefore, I thank God that by his grace, he keeps that lid on. I don't have the strength to keep the lid on, only he can. But by being with the Lord and 
and listening to the Lord, then I can keep the lid on on my life. I can, Pandora's box doesn't have to be open because there's still that in me. There's things that I don't desire in myself or in desire in other people as well. But God can take the break off on society, and this is what he does. But what's interesting here, Paul begins to talk about, verse 26, give them over to degrading passions, and he begins to talk about relationships. For women exchange the natural function to that which is unnatural. In the same way, God, uh, also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burn in their desire toward one another. So God made men in two halves. Women, men. Two halves, only two halves. And they complement each other. And in society, they work together. In marriage, they work together in relationships, and they work together to bring about more children. That's how you came along. That's how I came along, right? There is that cooperation in relationship in women and men, partnership together to be parents. And there's a joy in that family, and there's a joy in that female and male relationship as God intended it to be. He created them male and female, and he created them to be partners together in marriage. If it's too hot in here, I'm not sure if the air on, uh, but if it's not on, somebody can turn it on, that'd be great. The first stage, the first stage that a society has gone in an opposite direction, the first stage is the fact when that, those relationships begin to break apart. Women and men begin to act differently toward each other. Verse 26 Women exchange the natural function to that which is unnatural. And men exchange the natural function, meaning that there was a natural relationship that men have with women. There's a natural relationship that women have with men. It's, it's natural. It's the order of the way God intended it and created it to be. And society begins to go downhill when those things come up in society. The first stage is when women and men begin to behave differently toward each other. And women begin to act like men, and men become effeminate, and they begin to act like women. This is the word of God. This is not Marco's opinion. Of it. I'm simply reading it. Right? They exchange the natural function of a woman. She's a woman, not a man. They want to become men. He's a man. He's a boy. He's a young man. He's not a young woman. They exchange them, and that's the first thing we see. I would say this with a broken heart. We are past the first stage in deterioration of male and female relationship in our society. But it goes on because it says, they, uh, verse 27, men with men committing indecent act and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. And men begin to have uh, sexual relationships with men and women begin to have sexual relationships with women, women with women, men with men, and therefore families are gone because there's no procreation anymore. So, of course, what does the uh, LGBT community and things like that, they begin to adopt our children, children that came out of the natural relationship that comes from a man and a woman because that relationship, those relationships cannot procreate. It's not natural. It's not in the order function which God intended it to be. They begin to now take from the natural and bring them into the unnatural, and they began to say, this is natural. Well, the natural thing was for you to marry a man and have children. The unnatural would be for you to marry a woman and adopt children of relationships that you don't agree with. That's what I have a hard time with. 
That's what doesn't make sense. But we're not dealing with sense here because God has given them over to a depraved body and a depraved mind, a debased body and a depraved mind, I should say. Which time in history is Paul talking about? Just leave that as a question. We'll answer it at the end. Which point in history is Paul referring to here? Um, and we can have a lot of questions about that. They receive in themselves the penalty of their error in their body, it says. In their own persons, in their own personalities, in their own being, they receive in themselves penalty of the error. I don't have time to go into the epidemiology of what happens when somebody practices homosexual lifestyle, the weakening of the immune system, the propensity for cancer, the propensity for glaucoma, the propensity for many uh, bacterial diseases. Uh, bacterial diseases that are resistant to the most powerful antibodies that we have. It'll go on and on and on, just talking about diseases that come. And not only that, longevity. The longevity of those who practice such things uh, gets shortened. Now, these, these are not, you can, it's not even a moral issue at this point, just a scientific issue. You practice this, it's a guarantee of a short lifespan and amount of diseases. That's what the scientific data shows. Why doesn't everybody talk about that? Because we want to suppress the truth. We, want to, we don't want this because if, if, if this was unnatural, then you have to agree with there is a natural. And who created the natural? There's a God, and God created us like that. Well, let's continue because I've got I to keep going. Verse 28, just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over. There's that thing again to their depraved mind, and to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness. And I'll start with this. I will. The depraved mind goes like this. So a debased body, now a depraved mind. A debased body doing things immoral. A depraved mind. God gives them over to a depraved mind, and they begin to practice these things. So before we begin to say, oh, I can't believe homosexual community is doing this. And by the way, I think my brother... Bear for this. This is what the LA County sheriffs are wearing. Um, and I don't know for how long they have to wear it, brother, but um, for a time they could they choose to wear this through the gay pride months, which is June. Uh, again, this is permeating society. This, this is, you see it in sports. You see it in everywhere, right? And so depraved minds, acceptance, and before we could say, how, this is awful, how dare they do that? Look at the context. And you tell me if anybody in this church, including your pastor, is not guilty of any of this. So let's, let's, let's read them one by one. Being filled with unrighteousness. The word means a general attitude of injustice. A liking for wrong things. A desire for wrongdoing. If you can get away with it, you would do it. A depraved mind. People that are filled with unrighteousness. The next word is wickedness, a desire to harm, to injure, or to drag somebody down, a, de uh, uh, a desire to bring them down to your level. The next word, greed, covetousness, to want, more, uh, to want more than what you have, a desire to have more, a discontent to what you already have. Evil, uh, yeah, evil, viciousness, to attack people. Verbally or physically, full of envy, twisted emotion to want something of them or to betray them with this uh, emotion that Cain had toward Abel. 
And of course, Pilate says he knew because of envy they had surrendered Jesus to them. Uh, by the way, envy is to uh, desire the position of that person or to envy in them in their gifts or their callings. My friend, can I be honest really quick with you? I tell my, my, my kids know this joke. I say, can I tell you a story? And it's not a pastor story. You know what I mean by a pastor story? We don't know if it's true or not. They're pastor stories. Uh, fortunately, I, 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 I don't, I don't want to tell you pastor stories, true stories. Uh, and I tell you with full conviction, envy. I've, I've been in the corporate world. I've been in the ministry world. Sometimes I don't know which one I'm in because of the envy that occurs among church leaders, among ministers, among pastors, among missionaries, among worship leaders, among uh, children's school, Sunday school teachers. This is, this is a serious thing. This is just a series, as we just read, about women with women and men with men. And the envy of, why, why is he? Why did he get chosen to be the leader there? Why is he in the back there playing with the computer? Why is he teaching today? Why is he in the back with the kids? Why does he have more gifts than I do? Why does he get to do communion? And you see that? Why does he get chosen to be a deacon and not me? And it's that envy that permeates the heart, even of God's people. And I've been in, in, in boardrooms and corporate world, and it's the same thing. Why does he get the title of that? And why does he get the corner office? And why does he get the raise? And why does he get the secretary? And it's this envy that permeates that world as well. But it shouldn't be. Let's continue. Full of envy, murder. I don't have to tell you that. Well, pastor, I, I can tell you I haven't done that one. Well, let's Jesus define that. If you've been angry at a person and despised them and called them a fool, you're just guilty. Strive to content because of pride and ambition to argue and push yourself to the top. Deceit, cunning, ulterior motives, underhanded methods to get what you want. Malice or malignity. Um, to believe the worst in, in what you hear and to paint the picture of the worst about what you heard and what is actually true. Right? That is malice. To paint the picture, to construct something. You know, you hear something and you go, oh, that's it. Are they doing that? that, 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 that. They're doing that. And you construct this whole thing out of one sentence that you heard and you tell somebody else not what you really heard but your construction of what you heard. That's malice, my friend. That is malice. Gossip. It means a whisper uh, to go around others behind their back and to say things about them or what they did. And um, I'm sure this doesn't happen in this church. Mm. Uh, people in churches, or they speak about other people, they speak about other things, they speak about it in their homes, they speak about it in prayer meetings, and they speak about it in Bible studies, so they're no longer Bible studies or prayer meetings. They become gossip meetings. Slanders openly speak about others and destroy their reputation. Haters of God, they don't like God because they're God, God constrains them and he gives them commands and people hate God for it. Insolent means to defy uh, to be rude to those who are superior to you. Haughty pride, the seminal sin. Uh, pride to believe in something bigger, higher than what you are. Arrogant, boastful, pretend to be or to have or to do what is in fact the opposite. Uh, to put a veneer, right? To pretend to be or to have, in fact, 
which is in fact the opposite of what it is, right? You're not that way, but you pretend to be that way. You know, you, you really are not that kind at home. But when you get to church, everybody thinks you're the second coming of the Apostle Paul, right? Something like that, right? You yell at your wife, you yell at your kids, you lose your temper, but then you come here and you have the fruit of the Spirit. At least you pretend to have. That's called, um, where was I? Arrogant, boastful, pretending to be, right? Uh, inventors of evil, constantly finding new ways of sinning. That's the, 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 the simple definition. Inventors of evil, constantly finding new ways of sinning. Notice today you go to the pharmacy, and now they don't sell you things that we used to have as, as kids. We used to get all kinds, different kinds of medicines over the counter. Now they have to have in the back, way back under lock and key, because kids and kids our age found new ways to use them in the wrong way. I mean, who would have thought about using cough medicine and, and codeine and, 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 and uh, things for your nose, nasal sprays, to, to do harm? To, I mean, people literally die using these kinds of things, and they invented those things, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, a teenager who stares down their parents and say, who made you the boss over me? Why are you telling me how to live my life? I'm 14. Do you know how much I lived? All in tongue-in-cheek, but you get the point. They ignore the wisdom of others. They ignore the wisdom that your parents have been there. They ignore the wisdom that they've made mistakes just trying to help you, not to make your own mistakes. Without understanding or foolish, somebody who's unreasonable, unapproachable, you can't talk to them, untrustworthy or faithless, a person who breaks his promise. He made it, he signed it, then he breaks it. Whether it's marriage or whether it's just something that we can count on you for ministry, we can count on you to be there. Unloving or heartless, no natural affection, inability to make friends unmerciful or ruthless, to be cruel and sensitive to people. And though they knew that these are the ordinances of God, they knew the ordinances of God, that those who practice such things uh, are worthy of death, meaning that there are people that know that these things are good to stay away from. There are people that know that these things are bad in your life. I know guys who cuss up a storm, but when they come home, they don't cuss in front of their kids. Why? They don't want their kids to, that's bad for them. They may not care about themselves too much, but they care about their kids, and they don't, don't do it, right? There's still people that, that think that way, right? They, 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 I know that people that operate that way, they do certain things on the road, or, but they won't bring it at home. They don't do it in front of their mom. They don't do it in front of their wives. Why? They don't want to hurt them. They don't want them to go down the same road. They know that these are good things. They know the ordinances of God that those who practice such things are worthy of death. You're going to destroy your life if you practice those things. However, when the brakes are off and God takes the brake off a person and off society, they think like this. They not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. When a society is off and down the road, then it doesn't matter if you see it or not. It's in front of your face. They don't hide it anymore. It's, it's, it's overt. It's out there. It's clear. And, of course, this, is, this happens to our society as well. This happened to our society. By the way, this doesn't mean that when God takes the brakes off, this immediately happens in society. Because that's what people say. Oh, Pastor, you, you know, that hasn't happened yet because we don't see everything like that. It happens gradually. My friend, God is a merciful God. God is patient. And he was patient with me. 
that the brakes did not come off my life. At times it felt like that. But then Jesus came and he put the brakes on. He put the lid back on. And it doesn't appear in everybody's life the same way. But I could tell you this. I'll speak about women very quickly. Women, for the most part, in our society, talk about American society, for the most part, have been the ones who have generally kept, who have generally kept uh, moral standards in our society, meaning that you could always count on the mother or the grandmother praying for their son, praying for their husbands, praying for their wives. I mean, how many of us came because of a praying mother or a praying grandmother? I know hardened criminals that, that change their lives because they say, you know, my grandmother, my mom, she loved me. She prayed for me, right? There was this, this idea that these women were kept, kept society at bay. Men can go off and do their thing, and they were doing evil things, but women were at home and stayed at home and prayed. But now, when you see, when you see women breaking the moral standards of society, when you see women behaving like men in that way, then you would see societies heading down a path with no breaks. And God has taken the breaks off, and women are heading down the same situation. Talk about women's rights, right? Talking about being the same. Talking about we want equal rights. Well, women were always the ones that kept the home together. In many cases, women waited for their husband, prayed for them. Now women are not praying for them and not keeping them. They're going off and doing exactly what the men have been doing for a long time. This doesn't excuse men. But I'm just thinking about an indicator when you see women behaving like that. Well, he did that to me. He was with that woman. I'm going to go get another man. And instead of being at home and praying and seeking the Lord and and taking care of the kids. By the way, we saw a lot of this in Mexico. This happens quite a bit. Well, I'm going to be done with this because I think it's time. And I'm not saying it because of that. I I think it's time because uh, we have communion. By the way, my friend. What the question was, was Paul talking about his own time or a specific time in history? What do you think? Anybody? It's quite interesting, right? He is technically writing of his own time, but it's written like a prophecy. And it's written like something for every society to watch out for. I could tell you this as, as, we, as we finish. And I know that doesn't mean many things sometimes. But Paul is describing his own time. He lived in the Roman Empire. But the Roman Empire wasn't always an empire before. It was a republic before. And I could tell you this, just very quickly, these are two periods of the Roman era in which most historians divide the Roman era. And they see the republic and they see the empire. And I can give you a couple of facts here. Uh, during, the, um, during the republic, you found very little idols. And the excavation of ancient republic of Rome very little idolatry. Uh, in fact, they believed in a lot of cases, they believed there was one supreme God, influenced a lot of them by Greek philosophy and things like that, but they believed that there was one true God, and of course the Jewish influence. But then during the empire, you have idols everywhere. Why? Because as they conquered, as they became an empire, they conquered Egypt and Greece and other places, and they brought those idols into their home, into their place. Um, the Republic lifted marriage up. Very little divorce in the Republic. What do you think the empire? Extreme divorce. In fact, women kept their diaries by the date of their marriages. You know what I mean by that? They kept their, I know you guys don't keep diaries anymore. You know, 
they kept their diaries based on the date of their marriages, meaning that their entries that they found in Roman history have to do with they married once, they married twice, they married three times. In fact, many of them, eight marriages in five years was pretty customary. Eight marriages in five years was pretty customary. We are impressed by that. But I can just take you down to the Rancho Cucamonga uh, Supreme Court or the San Bernardino Court, and I can tell you that uh, divorce happens every time, marriage and divorce. Same person again, maybe three or four years later, doing the same thing. Uh, in the Republic, uh, marriage was between men and women, pretty moral, pretty standard. And during the empire, 14 out of the first 15 emperors were homosexual, bisexual. You see the difference. Um, Roman historians write about this, and they even decry, they are upset that society had become like that. But this is the society that Paul went in there. And Paul says the wrath of God is being revealed in his own days. And my friend, I don't know what to tell you about our own society. Is the wrath of God being revealed in our society today? You have to answer that question. Is the wrath of God being revealed? I'm not saying it's here and it's done. I'm saying it is being revealed from heaven when you see this in society. And far more, when you see this in the church and pastors and leaders acquiescence, going along with it and applauding it and marching along and what God said not to do. Then you got a problem. But Paul says, just like the wrath of God has been revealed, something else is being revealed. Verse 7, 16 and 17. I am not ashamed of the gospel. The gospel that saves. The gospel that says you need to come to Christ. He's the only way to save you and die to yourself and live for Jesus. For it is the power of God for salvation, not just social salvation, but a spiritual salvation. Salvation that will make you a new creation, a new person. To everyone to believe, who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For it is the righteousness of God, because the righteousness of God is revealed. We, this is why Paul was sent to Rome, because Rome was in deep trouble. And God sent Paul, go preach the gospel. Because it's the only way to turn society from what we just read into right standing with God. Not more laws. We have plenty of laws. But what happens when you give laws to lawless people? They'll just keep breaking. But when you have commands and law to righteous people, then the law works. Because the law was not made for the immoral, right? Uh, it, wasn't made for, uh, it wasn't made for the righteous people. It was made for the immoral people to show them that they're wrong. We, we don't have problems with the law, if we're living righteous, the law is good. The law is right. Talk about the law in society. But you give more laws to lawless people, they'll just keep breaking them. That's what Paul says, I have come to preach the gospel. And I'm not ashamed of it because it is the righteousness of God. I believe America is past the first stage. I believe America is past the second stage in terms of why is God angry and how is God revealing his anger. I think we're on the cusp. We're on the cusp of seeing society be given over more and more to the wrath of God, meaning that not just seeing this as society, but people applauding it as if it's something normative. You realize pedophilia has become normative in our society, lowering the age of, uh, of marriage to uh, acquiesce to people that want to marry 14, 15, 16-year-olds. That's being debated. You realize cannibalism in our society is on the rise, not only because of... Um, the, the, the ideas of Satanism and the idea of wickedness, uh, but also the, it's being permeated by movie stars and things like that, and then going, 
man, that should be kind of a cool thing to do, right? We haven't tried that. And that, he said, well, I don't know any neighbors that practice that. Well, not yet. And I hope it never happens. But that is acceptable in certain societies. And it's being acceptable more and more. Toward, I mean, what did they have shows about? You ever seen those shows? I don't watch them, but I know about them. <laughs> it shows that there's not only violence, but also the fact that it is okay to do cannibalistic practices. You know, there, there's some merit to that. And if they wanted to do that, why not? Well, that's the society we live. More laws, people say. No, more gospel. So go and preach and share the gospel. It's the only way society can turn to make people that are wrong with God to make them right. For it is the righteousness of God. The righteousness of God is revealed so people can be made right with God. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this passage and thank you for the fact that you had given it to us so that we would understand the times in which we live. And Lord God, I pray that you help us. You help us, Lord, be more committed to preaching and sharing the gospel, to seeing people made right with you. And so, Lord, we pray for this message that will go out into the hearts of men and women. Lord, I thank you that you did not leave us orphans, but you gave us your Holy Spirit. Please make it real to us, Lord, through your Holy Spirit. Make it alive in our hearts so that, Lord, we would not practice those things that are depicted in there, that are written in there, that we will be, Lord, forgiven for those things and stay away from those things that not only, uh, Lord, is an equal status to immoral sin and practicing immoral sin, Lord, but also the sins in the mind and in the heart Keep us from those things, Lord God. We are not sufficient of ourselves. We depend on you to keep the lid on, to keep us from those things. And we ask you all this in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen.